Yo! What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! That's right. Is that... Can you do... What's the... What What was the dad's... Cameron's dad impression? The Sloan's dad impression. Roar, roar. Mr. Rooney, show me the meaning. Show me the meaning, Mr. Rooney. I love that that is the one voice Cameron can do. <laughs> yeah, you can only every, do the one. Every time they have to run a grift, it's the same fucking voice. Yeah, that's right. It works, though, right? It's the, the cop and everything. So, yeah. So, this week, we are going to be talking about the John Hughes classic, the 1986 Ferris Bueller's Day Off. We've got the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And joining us again after a while is Evan. Hello, everybody. And the crowd goes wild. And the crowd goes wild. So, okay. So, like I said, we're going to be talking about the uh, 1986 classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It uh, is written, co-produced, directed by Hughes himself. And it stars the charming and cheeky as fuck Matthew Broderick. It's got a huge cast here. Let me read this out. Mia Sarah, Alan Ruck. Jennifer Grey, pre-Dirty Dancing, Charlie Sheen, Ben Stein, Del Close, Christy Swanson is in it, uh, Louis Anderson, and of course the inimitable Jeffrey Jones as Vice Principal Rooney. Now this was a patron-chosen uh, film. So we ran a poll and we put it up on Patreon and uh, the patrons voted, and so I'm just going to go over the results real quick of the films. And I just have to say, this was my choice, and I never win one of these, so <laughs> I, I'm glad that I finally I finally won one. And I never even perform well. I usually am in, like, the bottom half, so it was nice that I actually got first and second with my choices. Uh, so Ferris Dang. was the first, uh, and it was 31% of the votes. Jaws was second with 22%. Uh, third was Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which was Raymond's choice, which I was like... A classic Thanksgiving flick. It is, and I hadn't even thought about that film since I was a kid, so I was like really surprised to see that one actually come up. And actually, I'm actually surprised that it performed as well as it did. I didn't know that people would really know that film, so um, that was kind of a, a surprise. A League of Their Own came in fourth with 13%. Rounders was at 9%. And last, with no love, was National Lampoon's Vacation at 8%. I mean, maybe it's because it's not Christmas <laughs> Vacation and everybody knows Christmas Vacation. Sure. It got 8% of love. Yeah. Got a little bit of love, I guess. So It got more love than uh, Edie McClurg did in your uh, cast rundown. No love for Grace, the secretary, in this one. Oops, sorry. <laughs> um, okay, so let's go into first impressions uh, and then what it was like to revisit this film. We'll start with Evan. What are your thoughts about Ferris? Yeah, so um, I had always heard about this movie growing up, uh, but I didn't wasn't really watching like any like classic films or even just classic American blockbusters. Like I hadn't still haven't seen a lot of like classic stuff but when it was my senior cut day in high school i was like you know what i'm gonna wake up early and i'm gonna watch ferris bueller's day off and then i'll go have a fun day with my friends so i woke up at the normal time you would wake up to go to school eight wow. o'clock seven o'clock whatever i'm gonna watch ferris bueller's day off and i remember as soon as the movie ended i was like well how am i gonna have a better day than that that's like that set up a terrible <laughs> and then you just went back uh, to bed <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the the more I reflect upon the day I had then, it was uh, the core thing the same, you know, hung out, hung out with your girl, hang out with your best friend and just go out on the town. Uh, so revisiting it, I was really happy to because I'd always wanted to rewatch it. I'd always liked this film a lot. Um, and I think it held up pretty well. Um, I enjoyed a lot of the moments, but I will say that the part that my favorite part that I always like go to like go to bat for on this film is really just how what happens in the 15 minutes like preceding the parade like the museum trip mm. uh, uh the parade then sloan and um sloan and cameron's conversations at the parade those like 15 minutes or 10 minutes whatever it is like have stuck with me for a very very long time and so it was cool to like be like oh wow i really love those this movie for that small thing uh, so I'm in, I'm I'm really interested in talking to you guys about it today and, and hearing what y'all thought. Cool, Raymond. What about you, brother? 
Um, I've seen this movie more times than I can count. It's one that's been on uh, pretty steady rotation on cable forever, it seems like. Um, so I saw this back when I was a, a, a youngster and uh, seen it several times since, but had probably not seen it um, for a few years until recently. Uh, I rewatched it with my girlfriend a few months ago and then uh, took another watch two nights ago or three nights ago to prepare for the podcast. And, you know, I still really like the movie, but there's this weird tension with it for me that hopefully we get a chance to unpack a little bit. I think I need some help because I think it's an immensely likable film, but I think Ferris Bueller is an entirely loathsome person. Interesting. I don't like him at all, but I think it sort of clicked for me last night that this is not about Ferris Bueller. This is a movie about Cameron. That uh, he he's the character who has the emotional journey in this. He's he's the one who you know is actually going through this stuff and and uh, and unpacking something. Whereas like Ferris wakes up in the morning as um, a narcissistic little shit heel, and uh, he. He lays down at night as a narcissistic little shit heel, and I don't really think he's learned much of anything. But um, I really, uh, I really, really love Alan Ruck in this, and I also do want to say I really like Matthew Broderick in this. I think it, it's a testament to how charming Matthew Broderick is that this character so is, it, it, yeah, that you want to go along with him on these event- adventures. Uh, despite the yeah. fact that, uh, I mean, I, I think in a, in a lesser actor's hands, or even just a different actor that has the wrong energy for this, it would be completely unpalatable. But uh, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, Austin. I know you're a big fan. Well, here's the thing. I hadn't seen this film in ages, so it just kind of popped into my head as one of those classics that everybody loves. And so I was like, well, shoot, I wonder what it's going to be like to revisit this film. And I had a lot of hesitation going in for a couple of reasons one sometimes these older films like the acting isn't very good and they can be kind of cheesy especially when you're working with younger actors and so first um like revisiting this i was totally blown away because i think i had forgotten so much like i remembered some of the hijinks and you know some of the some of the clips that have been memed into kind of the cultural ethos but i don't think i remembered the film really and I definitely didn't remember the performances. And I was really blown away with how freaking charming Matthew Broderick is. And not just Broderick, but Broderick, Sloan, and Ruck are all actually tremendous actors. And their comedic timing and the ease, and there's no... Like, yeah, they're being a bit a bit goofy and zany at times, but the, it all seems like you would be with your friends if you had kind of more zany friends. Like if you grew up with like theater kids or something like that, right? Like rather than like the like the I'm TC kind of kids or something like that. And these kids kind of have that zaniness to them. And I was really blown away with that. Um, and I actually, I found a little bit of depth in this film. And I, I, I think that, you know, this film is taking place in, in Reagan's America. I think there's a lot of kind of middle-class comforts, and there's, like, really no stakes for Ferris Bueller. Like, that's what I was thinking. None whatsoever. Like, yeah. There's no stakes. It's not, like, it's not like if you look at high school films now where it's, like, they're dealing with serious shit. I don't know if it's, like, post-9-11, if it's post-financial crisis, but you can't imagine someone making a fucking high school film about, like, a guy that just decides to ditch school and go on a zany adventure with his friends. Like, there would be something serious, and that's why I think you're right, that Cam is the one who brings the, no, I actually have something with my dad, so I've got some personal shit, and also... This is the transition moment. This is our senior year of high school. And I think there's something really interesting about that, at least as a retrospective piece of writing in the hands of John Hughes that kind of makes this moment so contracted and so important. And that's where the stakes come from. But it's not fucking Ferris. Ferris, the protagonist, is literally low stakes. And I was like, okay, that's kind of really interesting. And I never realized that before. So that was kind of my thoughts as I was watching it this time. But I fucking loved it. I absolutely loved it. So, um, okay. So I'll go into the recap real quick and then we can kind of break things down. All right. So Ferris Bueller is a high school senior who fakes an illness to get out of school for the ninth time this school year. His naive and caring parents buy his I'm so sick shtick and let him stay home so he can rest, all to the chagrin of his sister, Jeannie, played by Jennifer Grey, 
who knows that it's all BS and is jealous that he gets the special treatment while she's never given such leeway. So the parents go to work, Jeannie goes to school, and Ferris, he sips drinks by the pool and breaks the fourth wall, explaining a bit to the audience about who he is and how he got away with his little deceit. At school, rumors are flying around that Ferris is on his deathbed or whatever, so sympathies fly around. But the villainous, though, as Jess from New Girl points out, perhaps in the right Vice Principal Rooney knows that Ferris is scamming and tries to prove it by contacting Ferris's mom, who assures Rooney that Ferris is actually sick. But Rooney smells that something's up, so he begins his mission to catch Ferris in his lie. Ferris convinces his best friend Cam, Cameron to come hang out and help lure Ferris's girlfriend Sloan out of school by pretending to be her father and faking a family death. It works, so Ferris and Cam grab Cam's dad's Ferrari and pick up Sloan from school, where Ferris poses as Sloan's dad in the parking lot at a distance from Rooney's watchful eye, and so then when Sloan approaches Ferris posing as her dad, they make out, and Rooney's a little bit weirded out by that because he thinks it's the dad. <laughs> Such <but> a <laughs> weird moment. <laughs> so, Do you have a kiss for daddy? <laughs> yeah. The trio then head to downtown. Oh, and also, by the way, we're in Chicago here. Uh, so they park the Ferrari with some parking attendants who take the car for a joyride, and then the trio begin to explore the city. They go to the top of Sears Tower, they catch a Cubs game, a couple other things, they go to the museum, and Ferris does a sick lip-sync routine atop of a float during the Von Steuben Day Parade. Meanwhile, VP Rooney snoops around the Bueller household, but gets caught up in all kinds of ridiculous pratfalls. Jeannie decides to skip school herself to confront Ferris, but while at home, she runs into Rooney in her house, knocks him out with a nice karate kick, calls the cops, reporting that there's an intruder in the house. Rooney gets up, flees the house, and runs out, but leaves his wallet behind on the kitchen floor. When the cops arrive, however, they think that Jeannie was prank-calling them, so they take her to the station for making a false report. While in the station, she meets a hunky delinquent, played by Charlie Sheen, who tells her to chill... She's like, yeah, you're right, so they make out a little bit. Uh, the trio then finish their journey in the city. They head home to drop off their Ferrari, but back at Cam's, they uh, are trying to reverse the mileage on the car by putting it up on some blocks <laughs> and then driving it in reverse because they think that's going to take the mileage down, but that doesn't work. So Cam finally goes to a breaking point. He snaps and he starts beating the shit out of his dad's precious car. Uh, he ends up knocking the car off the blocks, and because the car is in reverse, the car then speeds backwards out the garage, which is this beautiful, like, windowed garage up over a ravine. The car flies through the glass, crashing into the ravine below, destroying the car. Ferris offers to take the blame, but Cam says no, he's going to do it, and that it's finally his time to stand up to his pops. So Ferris ends up walking Sloan home, and they realize that it's just about time that Ferris's parents are going to be home, so he has to race to beat them back uh, to the house. Just as he arrives, however, he runs into Rooney at the back porch, who's just about to bust him, but the now elated genie, I guess presumably because she just got some of that Charlie Sheen tiger blood winning magic, she's now had a change of heart, so she actually joins Ferris's side and threatens Rooney by reminding him that he left his wallet on the kitchen floor and saying that he broke into the house, so then Rooney gets all scared and he runs off. Uh, Jeannie kind of like is all still floating on clouds. Ferris runs upstairs, jumps into bed just before the parents are able to get into the door so they can check on him. They see that he's sleeping safe and sound. He's also all hot and clammy and sweaty, and so they're like, oh my god, he's really sick. Maybe he should stay home another day. And then Ferris, of course, gets away with all the shenanigans. But then at the end, he looks into the camera and tells the audience the mantra of the film, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. All right, guys, before we continue, I want to give a shout out to this week's sponsor, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is an unlimited library of high-quality, royalty-free video, audio, and images that can be accessed through a subscription. Whether you're a YouTuber, streamer, podcaster, or even aspiring filmmaker, you know how essential it is to find music that pieces together your project. You also know that it can be really costly to license clips that you want to use. It's even more devastating if you end up downloading something and then you find out it's not exactly what you wanted. Well, Storyblocks is constantly updating their library, so you can find whatever assets you need to complete your project. You can even use their new tool, Maker, to make sure that everything fits into place before downloading. And the best part is that once you download something, it's yours to keep. You can use it for any project, personal or professional. So check out everything that Storyblocks has to offer today 
by clicking the link in the show notes or by going to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack. Now back to the show. All right, so first things first. Before we get into the film, we just got to take a second to talk about John Hughes because I'm just going to go through a list of the films that he's either written, produced, or directed right now. Okay, National Lampoon's Vacation, National Lampoon's European Vacation, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, my favorite of the National Lampoon films, Mr. Mom, great film, 16 Candles, Weird Science, The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Pretty in Pink, Some Kind of Wonderful, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. This was, by the way, a very, uh, in our patron poll, for whatever reason, it was a very John Hughes-heavy patron uh, selection. We had three out of the six were patron, or were, were Hughes. Didn't even think about that. And I know, one right? from each of us. Yeah, yeah, one from each of us. Okay, She's Having a Baby, Uncle Buck, Dutch, Dennis the Menace, Baby's Day Out, the Beethoven franchise, and the Home Alone films. Ooh. Like... This guy, fuck, this guy just gets comedy and he just has like a finger on the pulse of like the American comedic mind for whatever reason. What do we think about John Hughes? Evan, what do you think? Uh, have you, uh, I know that you're not, um, I mean, by your own admission, Evan, you said there's a ton of movies you haven't seen. Um, have you seen a lot of his yeah. other ones? I've seen, yeah, I, I've seen, um, 16 candles i've seen breakfast club um and i've seen you know the home alone films and i think i've seen baby's day out when i was working with little kids and trying to put on a movie <laughs> um maybe not the best giving them the wrong ideas with them. <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah i mean everything i've seen of his i i've always loved um i think it was really cool to hear you guys say that how much you pulled away from how both of you were really affected by Cameron's storyline uh, on this watch through because that was what stuck out to me the first time I watched it. I'm like, this whole time people have been telling me about this Ferris Bueller guy, but all I want to do is learn more about Cameron. And like, and and his storyline always stuck out to me. And I think that for me, like with comedies and stuff, when there's you have a grounded character who's really going through some shit, like to see how you toe the line between that kind of sadness while you know in, interspersing like comedic moments. I, you know, that stuff's really great. And I think you can see a lot of that in John Hughes' work. You know, there's this undercurrent of something that is very mm. sad. And like Home Alone, you know, Kevin is left by himself. That's so sad. Planes, like, Trains, and Automobiles also has, um, I don't know if you've seen that one, Evan. Um, but uh, it, it has, a, not to spoil anything, but there's a, a third act reveal in that that's um, uh, kind of heartbreaking for John Candy's character. But yeah. it's, a, it, it's a pretty good moment in the film. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean... I, I, I love his stuff and I definitely should do a whole kind of, you know, retrospective and a watch through of everything he's done. <laughs> yeah, I think you, you would really dig his stuff, especially if you like this one uh, so much. Yeah. Raymond, what are your thoughts on John Hughes? John Hughes, um, I mean, obviously very influential filmmaker. And right now we're living through kind of a, uh, a resurgence in a lot of 80s aesthetic. There's been... Uh, certainly in the horror world, especially, uh, which may owe a bit more to John Carpenter than John Hughes. But I think, um, yeah, we're, we're seeing folks who grew up with these movies are now making movies themselves, and, and his influence is undeniable. And even at the time, I would say his, his influence was undeniable. He uh, started a whole bunch of careers, you know, the, the, the entire Brat Pack. There was an entire movement surrounding these films. Um, and I, I think you guys are right. He definitely tapped into something in the zeitgeist then. And uh, I think what's interesting about John Hughes and what makes these movies um, or what allows them to speak to future generations is that he doesn't, he doesn't judge kids. Um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't look back in anger and he doesn't judge his younger self when he writes. I think I think he writes from a sense of of joy and discovery and and certainly a little bit of nostalgia as well but I think um uh there there are a lot of folks who would later on in their lives or their uh, their film careers maybe maybe look back with a little bit of judgment and you never sense that from him I think he he always has a lot of compassion and empathy for young people and I I think that that still comes across when you watch these films yeah, I oh, wonder. And, uh, to, yeah. Oh, sorry. Just no, one ahead. more second. To Shane Lackey, who just jumped up in the chat. Uh, he, he didn't do Better Off Dead. That was Savage Steve Holland. But it, oh. it does have a similar vibe. I love Better Off Dead so much. Yeah, it's a fun one with John Cusack. <laughs> but sorry, the, Austin, yeah. go ahead. What was the, the... Oh, my God. It was the... 
so I think it's Corey Haim, and it's like driver's license where they and I, isn't it Heather Graham? Like young Heather Graham is in it too. Uh, license uh, that to one drive. Doesn't ring a bell. License okay. to drive. Yeah. Okay. I, I I don't think I've seen that one. This entire time period for me, this is what I grew up with, right? And so when you were just saying that, like John Hughes, he doesn't judge his younger self. There's there's, there's, I think, an element of that, and there's also a heavy, heavy slick of nostalgia. And I was thinking about it in this way. Like, all of these high school films, um, and I was even thinking of, like, a more recent one, a James Ponsolt film that I really love called The Spectacular Now, right? They're all movie. written with this nostalgia that, that this moment in high school, that your senior year of high school is, like, the point, the turning point. And I think... For a lot of these people, it's because they were writers, or they've become now successful writers, or they've become now successful in their career because they've left their hometown, right? And I think for them, it was going off to college, right? Did you go off to college and were you a part of like the Harvard com- comedy troupe or were you a part of the Yale Drama School Writers Guild or whatever the fuck it's called, right? Like, And then you look back and you're like, oh my God, that moment in high school with the high school girlfriend and the friends and one of them went off to military school and one of them went off to sure. this. And, and, and you look at that now in retrospect, like that was the moment. And I think what it did for me is it actually built up like a really false scent of ex- uh, sense of expectations about what high school was going to be. Because when I got into high school, I didn't feel the stakes like that. Like it wasn't the moment for me. Like I don't know if it was the turning point for me that was so meaningful. Like like the crossroads moment in my life. But all of these films always paint it that way. So there is something kind of interesting. I don't know if it was that way for everybody else. Like was it that way for you in high school? Like was that the moment for you? I mean, I think it's hard to know when it's like (laughs) the moment when you're in it, right? You know, I mean, and you can watch as much media as you want and like try to try to like step outside yourself and and think like, am I in that same stake? But, you know, I think that moment is always going to be different for someone. But I think what's so important is that you can watch this and kind of like see that a form of that potentially in even if it's a smaller thing uh in yourself like i was reading that um i think what kind of sets us apart is like this is before they've graduated a lot of these like high school films that you're talking about are like after people have graduated this is still like they're still technically in school but they still have all summer but they have this impending sense of what's to come you know and i think that definitely maybe it's because i watched it on my my senior skip day and i was still in high school but for me that was something that i was like oh yeah when he when uh, matthew broderick has the monologue where he's like can't we're gonna go off to different schools sloan's got a year you know like i we're just gonna fall apart that's what it is and i was like he's very oh clear-eyed about a lot of that stuff yeah and, yeah and i think I, I think the script does benefit from john hughes being able to look back on that rather than um you know if he had all of his skill as an 18 year old would he be able to write the same movie probably not i don't think he would have been aware how important it was to 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 have that opportunity to you know as Ferris Bueller says, look around uh, for fear that you'll miss things or, or, or to kind of just trap these moments in amber. And I, I think that that may even be reflected a little bit in how this movie is edited. One of the things that's always stuck out to me, not in a bad way with this film, is that it's very vignette And it almost mm. in a way where like if you sit down and watch it and pay attention to wardrobe and stuff, there's there's a lot of not necessarily continuity errors, but it's clear there's a lot of stuff that's just cut out and they just sort of maybe drop the museum into this part here and uh mm. it it feels almost more like a, a almost like a mixtape you know there's there's fun fast-paced stuff and then they slow things down there's that that beautiful um uh, uh instrumental rendition of uh please 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 let me get what i want by the smiths that plays in the um so in the museum <laughs> it, it it is just a really it, it, this movie is all about the vibes and, and those mm. those moment-to-moment mm. sort of things that, it, it, I mean, by his own admission, Ferris Bueller is out to just make some memories today and he he wants to just uh, uh, see priceless works of art and eat some pancreas. Um, so it's just, it, <laughs> it, it, it is it is one of those things that's kind of cool. If you if you read about this movie, John Hughes said that, I think he, he pitched this movie and when the studio picked it up, I think he wrote the first draft in like six days just because it was it was him just kind of trying to put all of these feelings down really quickly. And um, I, I think 
you know, even watching it now, that's still reflected. That energy is still reflected because yeah. this is so much just about riding a wave of good feelings. That wave of good feelings for me is articulated almost as like the exhilaration of freedom, right? And we feel it in all kinds of different moments. You feel it when you ditch school. You feel it when you're on stage performing. You feel it if you're a surfer when you catch that wave, you know? You feel it, whatever your thing is, you feel that freedom where it's like, the structures of society, the pressures of the world, the expectations, the responsibilities, those things are suspended for a minute and you're almost in like a transcendent state. And I think that's the tone that I really got last night. It was this exhilarating ride of freedom and it rushes you along almost like wind going down a tunnel, right? And it's just this whoosh and the whole film kind of builds like that. And um, I think that's that's kind of really what struck me last night. And that's why the whole idea, even though it's a, a fun high school film and there are kind of maybe the moments of, of seriousness with Cameron's issues with his dad and, and kind of that turning point for him in his life, but that really this is just kind of about a kid uh, trying to have a moment of freedom, you know, out from the pressures of something. You know, at least that's how it's pitched, you know? Yeah. And in a way that's weird, especially for a kid his age, to recognize that this is one of the last moments in his life that are utterly devoid of responsibilities. And and weird little subtle things, too, that like, as Ed Rooney is talking to his mom about how many days he's missed, you can see Ferris's grades on the computer, and he's a really good student. They're all like (laughs) A's and high B's. Well, he's smart as fuck. Yeah, and and that's one of the things when, when you watch this, you may think like, oh, he's blown off school nine times a semester whatever it's like no he seems apparently like he's a smart kid and he just he he just wants to take this day for himself and and all that is fine i don't i don't take exception to any of that the problem that i have is that he really sticks cameron's neck out there (laughs) like he's not really willing to assume the kind of uh consequences that he's asking cameron to assume and i think that that's the part where it loses Mm. me is that although i do like this movie just to reiterate it really, really bums me out that Cameron does not have a better best friend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you definitely see him like forcing forcing Cameron in, in to do stuff uh, in a way where it's like it's hard to see like where, where you know where the reciprocation is. But um, yeah, kind of kind of going back a little bit, I think it's really interesting like that moment of freedom that you're talking about, Austin, and how like Ferris Bueller decides to spend his day off doing some very adult things like right. things you would Go normally do more and, as an adult yeah and and eat fancy food eat and fancy stuff like foods, that yeah. and i think that there's that weird thing where it's like is he tapping into this um into this idea where he's like well i can be an adult and enjoy this but i won't have that the type of you know safeguard feeling of you know being in high school and being at the the you know having the wind behind my back so to speak of and and to fully mm-hmm. enjoy this without all the the real world pressure is sinking in you know or is it like this thing where you know, uh, like this is the uh, era and uh, of where it's like go to college, get a job. That's what it's supposed to be. Um, and you see all the kids in school, and they're all like falling asleep on their desks, and like they're not paying attention because they're just like we're in the system, we're in the that's system. It. Exactly. And so I wonder if that's one of those things where it's like, okay, so let me break. You know, is is it like I I want to enjoy these because I could be an adult, but I'm not yet, or it's like. I got to break the system, but the only thing I know how to enjoy myself doing things is by doing adult things that I'm looking at. This is why I tweeted out, and Raymond said he was going to hold me accountable to this, but I just just tweeted out that this is an essentially anti-capitalist film because it's precisely that. Evan. It's not anti-capitalist and like a socialist or Marxist or like some sort of collective solidarity or building alternatives. It's anarchism. But it's a type of anarchism that exactly like you just said, Evan, it says this is the system that we're being pushed through, right? Like in, in education theory, a lot of times they look at the American education system as being a factory to produce new workers, right? And you have like the top 20% that are going to go into maybe like white collar positions and be doctors, lawyers, whatever. And then maybe the bottom percent are going to drop out and not finish. But it's that middle, that middle chunk that are going to be the next like workers of the next age, the grunts for industry and for corporations and for capital and everything like that, right? And Ferris... Sure, but... Oh, go ahead. Oh, and so I was going to say in his his little mantra of uh, if you don't look around... 
because life moves pretty fast. I think what he's talking about is there's another idea of what's called the perpetual motion machine. And it's that things, you kind of just get caught up in this and you get sort of induced into velocity and you get pushed through the system. And so for him, he's like, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And now it's a very sort of like middle-class liberal anarchism, but it is a kind of, hey, we're going to get caught up in this freaking machinery, and so I'm going to just have that break. And that's what the freedom is, right? Go ahead, yeah. Brandon. And that's, that's what I was going to cut in and say there. How does your theory of this being a, an anti-capitalist movie or presenting an anti-capitalist perspective jive with the, the fact that you know, he, uh, as he says in the hallway, they could be fascist anarchists for all I care. If if this is an expression of anarchy for him to take off the day and do whatever, how does it jive with your theory? And I'm not challenging it. I'm just curious that yeah. all he does with his free day is go experience go signifiers of, of, of like yeah. upper <laughs> upper class wealth yeah, yeah. or managerial class. Like it, it just, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but it's still one of those things that's like, I don't know. I feel like this dude's going to work in a skyscraper one day and he's not going to yeah. be a great, like, I'm pretty sure that he's, he's going to be fucking Gordon Gecko. Without, without going too far down the political rabbit hole, there are a lot of people that would criticize anarchism essentially by saying that it's not essentially, um, that it's not essentially anti-capitalist and that it actually just feeds it because anytime you open up those spaces for freedom, it can just be like reincorporated really easily back within the system, right? Sure. So in that, and I get that, but I guess the point is, is that when you take a breath of air, when you have that moment of suspension, that moment of freedom to quote, stop and look around, I think that there is something that is essentially anti-systemic in that. And I think that's what John Hughes is trying yeah. to do. He's kind of trying to say, hey, like you're going to be my age one day and you got to kind of look back and be like, Take advantage of those moments to breathe and to stop. And and so even though it's nostalgic and he's pinpointing the high school years, I think there's something that he's trying to say that's like a larger idea about like finding those moments of freedom within a world of freaking chaos. And maybe yeah. maybe it's not like a, a, a utopian, like rebuilding the world, but it's definitely saying, hey, the world that we have isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And we got to find those pockets where we can escape. Yeah, and I, I I appreciate that perspective, but I also think it. Uh, I do have to just bring up that point that uh, mm. I think there's an immense degree of privilege that allows Ferris that breathing room. Oh, and yeah. um, once again, hey man, not to some go of the too most far down some the of the most hole, privileged yeah. people I know are anarchists. So I'm from Orange County. No, man. I understand that. <laughs> um, but it's also it's tough for it's tough for me to um, uh, it's tough for me to to see this perspective completely when this is the same guy who bullies his friend into letting him take yeah, yeah. the fanciest car in the country around. And then as soon as he hands off the keys to a parking attendant, the first thing he says is, do you speak English? Like, it's just one of those yeah. things that yeah, immediately yeah, yeah. sets off like uh, Patrick Bateman alarm bells for me. Well, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because uh, Michael Burns wanted me to mention that um, this he has always felt that this movie is an allegory for rich kids from the suburbs exploiting a city for their own pleasure on the backs of working people. Yeah. And that's definitely, I've definitely seen some people in the chat kind of saying that stuff already. Um, yeah. And re, so I watched the movie yesterday with that in mind and I was like, well, I kind of see it. <laughs> but what kind of like actually... Um, commits, uh, like stops me from like committing fully to that is the kind of, is the parade scene is like everybody having fun. It's like, you don't need to be Ferris. You don't need to be this, you know, uh, person that just like can't, you know, the world bends to him almost. It's like, you can stumble on this parade scene and, and have fun if you want to dance in the street with everybody else. <laughs> yeah. And this is no, the certainly. flip side. This is the flip side to the problem with like liberal anarchism, right? Is that, uh, Liberal diversity is really easy when you're like, hey, can't we all just get along and have fun and wave the American flag? And then, oh, look, there's a group of dancing black people that all of a sudden come around the corner and do a perfect choreographed scene on the stairs. Yeah. I'm kind of like, as soon as the movie <laughs> needed people to be good at dancing, it, it dug up some folks of color. That's, That's the, the yeah, one criticism true. I would levy at, at John Hughes' filmography. It is lily white. 
Yes, and that's it. That's 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 where Michael Burns' point is absolutely accurate because this is very much a middle class fantasy. I mean, look at fucking Ferris Bueller's house, man. Like it's upper middle class. Like this is this is a very like if you're in that position and you're privileged, then you can go and you can go to a Wrigley ball game, which is very expensive. You can go to the top of Sears Tower, tower, and you can look out over everybody and feel that power and that kind of supremacy that you have, right? Like it absolutely <laughs> is a we are very comfortable in our class position and in maybe our, our ethnic position as well. And so we're able to get away with all of these hijinks. And so it absolutely, that is, that is another element of this film, for sure. Yeah. Speaking of moments that are being, uh, of being memed, like you mentioned before, one of my favorite uh, college humor videos, uh, Jake and Amir are looking down uh, a glass building, and it's the same shot in the series where they're looking up at a, you know, the, the, our classic trio. And in, in the college humor video, Amir goes, everyone looks like Ferris Bueller from up here. <laughs> and I never understood that because I'd watched it all through high school, and then finally I watched the movie. I was like, oh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so um, now before we before we continue on to some other stuff, I do have to give a shout out to our other sponsor of the episode, which is Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community where millions come together to take the next step in their creative journey with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people like you on various topics such as illustration, design, photography, video, freelancing, and more. And it's perfect for lifelong learners of all ages and experience levels, beginners, pros, dabblers, and masters. Most classes are short, under 60 minutes, and they have flexible means of accessing their content so it can fit into your schedules. Um, so my personal fave, as I've mentioned before, are their film and video classes that they offer. I mean, I wasn't able to attend film school with all the grad work and stuff that I was doing in philosophy. So being able to explore their extensive library of classes has really been beneficial for me. Um, you can journey into iPhone videography, drone filming, editing, documentary filmmaking. I just produced a documentary this year that came out. I actually worked for a production company as a, a producer of like documentary and reality television. And a lot of the stuff that they're teaching in these classes has really kind of helped me flesh out some of my skills. Um, they do creative storytelling classes, etc., etc. So it's a really great selection. Uh, beyond this, you can explore journalism, drawing, creative writing, photography, and many, many other creative endeavors. So to explore your creativity, head over to Skillshare.com slash SMTM, as in show me the meaning. So that's Skillshare.com slash SMTM. And the first thousand people to use our link will get a free trial of Skillshare Premium Membership. So again, that's Skillshare.com slash SMTM to get access to hopefully being one of the first people to get a free trial of the Skillshare Premium Membership. And of course, you can always clink, click the link in the show notes down below. So all right, now let's keep chatting. So then do we think, so then is Ferris basically an anti-hero, I guess is the question in simple terms. He's an agent of chaos. He is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I I don't know that you can brand him with anything. I mean, I guess he is the protagonist in a way. Like he he is the person by whose agency this script advances. Um, but as far as someone actually having an emotional journey, a lot of that does fall on Cameron. Um, but I think of Ferris as being. Maybe maybe not an antagonist or an anti-hero, but he is certainly a foil for Cameron. Uh, a lot of people in the chat have brought up the very popular notion that this is a, a prequel to Fight Club, that Ferris is this sort of uh, Tyler Durden figure in uh, Cameron's narrator-style life where uh, um, he, he shows up to just kind of lob a hand grenade into his life and shake things up a little bit. Uh, I, I've read that theory online. I think it's really fun. I don't know that it holds a lot of water within the um, the actual text of this script, but it is kind of interesting to look at them as as one A and one B because the thing that I, I was thinking as I was watching uh, or rather rewatching for this podcast is like what what do you think binds these two together? Do you think that Ferris just needs an enabler and Cameron lets folks walk all over him. I've always thought it was kind of interesting that when, when Ferris takes a random day off, he knows with 100% certainty that Cameron will also be sick that day, which is just one of those things that sticks out in my mind is like, 
I don't really know if they planned that, but then there's also a weird moment when the nurse comes to Mia Sarah's classroom to pull her out. She, uh, Mia Sarah starts packing up all of her books before they even address her. So it's, uh, I think there is, like I said before, I think there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor to that would sort of imply or at least uh, I don't necessarily know that it needs an explanation but give a, a well, little like bit more of an understanding realism of, it's a height, yeah sure yeah but uh, I, I mean there's all, all this weird absurdist stuff in it like the the water tower being painted with save ferris and the entire city rallying around this kid like yeah. certainly those aspects of it are heightened but it <laughs> right. is very weird to me how he he just knows like he has this weird co- uh, like communion with Cameron that he it, it, he just knows he's going to be sick on that day somehow but to get back to the actual question what do you think it is that brings these two together well, I think Cameron's also supposed to be like a hypochondriac. So I think that him being sick is not something that's like uncommon, you know, or like sick, right, with quotes. Um, but I, yeah, it's like you said before, um, you know, he doesn't have any problems. He doesn't have any, it's actually, I want to bring up that it kind of reminds me of like the, um, of Marty McFly from Back to the Future. He also doesn't have any problems internally. Like his only problem is that he's, not in the right time. He also and has a very guess, weird best friend. <laughs> he also has a weird best friend. This is true, but he doesn't have any problems himself. And a lot of a lot of schools or film schools rather teach that as like the perfect script with quotes because you can you know move the the story along without having a character like have these in, internal problems. So I'm not sure if Ferris is like an anti-hero per se, but I don't. <laughs> Do you long-winded think, way of getting to that. Does does he have a moment of growth when he offers to take responsibility for the car? It's just that Cameron's journey is stronger, so it, it kind of takes over, you know? Like, is that a moment of responsibility where you're like, okay, so he's not a total asshole? Yeah, I'm not sure, though, because I know that that moment reminds me of, uh, it's a less-known film, but I'm still uh, fairly mainstream. There was a Noah Baumbach movie recently called While We're Young where... um. Uh, Adam Driver offers to Ben Stiller. He says, hey, do you want to co-direct it? And Ben Stiller says, no, man, it's your thing, whatever. And then when Ben Stiller gets mad at him later for for taking his idea or whatever, he goes, I offered to uh, co-direct it with you. And Ben Stiller just goes, because you knew I'd turn you down. (laughs) And it's just one of those, like... I, I don't know. I think he he knows Cameron very well. And I mean, to the point where he can somehow like pull out of the ether that he knows he's going to be sick on this very day. And I, I could see that going both ways. I could see that being a weird, subtle manipulation of a friend that he has no compunction about manipulating. <laughs> or it could be a, a sincere moment of growth for him. Yeah, we talk. We've been saying, or Ray, you've been saying a lot about how like a lot of stuff has been left on the cutting room floor. So the original cut of this movie was like two hours and forty five minutes, which is oh like my your, God. your normal Marvel, your normal Marvel movie. But you know, because it was all in the same day and they all wore the same clothes, like you know, John Hughes was able to move stuff around, take stuff out. So what's interesting is that I think Matthew Broderick's performance and the dialogue totally sells that he's had a moment of growth in that moment where he offers to take the heat for uh, Cameron. But I don't know if we've seen anything that has warranted that growth uh, for the character. Mm. Um, Besides, like, seeing Cameron being like, oh my god, this is the worst it's ever been, that he's been freaked out, I've never seen this before. Mm. But to me, that's the only thing, because nothing else in the day indicates that he's, like, turning a leaf, you know? Um... Like to get back to the, the, my, you know, my favorite fifteen minutes of the movie when Sloan and Cameron are talking, where they're looking for Ferris, or this is like, yeah, they're looking for Ferris. Like, where is he? Um, they they say like, oh yeah, like what are you gonna do after uh, after high school? He's like, I'm gonna go to college. He's like, what are you gonna be? I don't know. And then they pause. They look at Ferris dancing, and he goes, well, he's gonna be a fry cook at Pink's or something like that. And they laugh, but it's like they're so certain that like he, this guy's got his whole life figured out, you know. He and he's just content to be this like happy go lucky guy and have these like uh, like this magnet uh, of or be a magnet of good things, you know. Yeah, see, I I truly believe that film and TV has the power to shape the young minds of impressionable children. Like growing up, I wanted to be like the Matthew Broderick character, right? Like middle class <laughs> yuppie kid. I wanted to be like Zach Morris, and it it's only until I've become older that I'm like, oh, you know, Zach Morris was trash, and uh, fucking. <laughs> 
Ferris Bueller is a problematic type of figure, you know? Like, um, it, it is that, that agent of chaos, the privileged, untouched, spoiled little, the, the spoiled boy that gets away with all of the shit that it isn't exactly the greatest thing to try to emulate, you know? Um, so there is something interesting kind of in this. And this, this kind of goes back to what you guys were talking about with him being like the Tyler Durden character, which again, Tyler Durden is a sort of like anti-capitalist, at least in, in a sort of like anarchistic sense, um, type of figure, right? It isn't some sort of like, I'm building an alternative for the working class. It's more about like, hey, let's just throw a fucking grenade into the system. And um, there is something about that that I think is a potentially privileged position that you can be like, ah, because I'm going to come out unscathed, right? Like, I'll be okay because everything in my life has taught me that I'll be okay. So maybe when Ferris even offers, it's kind of like an, it's an, it's an authentic offer, but it's kind of like, because I know that it's not really going to have any sort of damaging effects on me. Whereas for Cam, Cam is, Cam is screwed. Like, we can envision when dad comes home, he's in big, big, big trouble. Right? I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know if his dad's going to beat the crap out of him. I don't know if his dad's going to send him to military academy. I don't know what's going to happen, but something bad is going to happen. There are if stakes you, If there. you read the script, there's a scene where his dad throws him out of the window to his death. Oh my god! What? I'm not. I'm not fucking with you. That's really? that's what happens to him in the script. Yeah. Oh my and god! It says it says that um uh it, that Ferris and Sloane get married and later divorced, and that's like all it says about them. Oh, so it's like a um, it, like, it says it's, yeah like oh, okay. after after this happened. Jeez, well I'm uh, really glad it doesn't end on that because that would have put me in a really crappy mood. There's a lot of stuff in the <laughs> yeah. script that that got cut out, like how he um. He, his parents have savings bonds for him, and he sort of goes into their office and breaks open their safe and takes one of those, and that's how he pays for his day out. Um, uh. So there, there's a lot of stuff like that that got cut out, uh, essentially. I think John Hughes said he cut that part out just to make Ferris more likable. He didn't want him to seem like a thief. Yeah, so the last thing I'll say, and then we got to go into the mailbag here, just to sum up what you just said, Raymond, is it's kind of like uh, what we got was the nostalgic, happy version of the film, but that there's actually a more sort of like pessimistic and maybe even realistic like you don't really marry your high school sweetheart that often and there are real consequences for doing crazy shit i mean i don't know about how many fathers kill their kids but like the point is is that there's there's a dark turn right that is more of like a pessimist and maybe like a dark realist but what we get is like the heightened optimistic realist version and i don't know if the other one the other version would have been the instant classic that this version has become uh can i say one thing before we jump to the mailbag yep um, we've talked a lot about this cast, Matthew Broderick, the supporting cast is phenomenal in this, but I just want to give a shout out, uh, to Marilyn Vance, who's the costume designer of this film. There are such great, subtle bits of costuming, like, uh, Ferris's cheetah print vest that implies he's a little wild, but I, I just want to point out, uh, in Chicago, there is nothing worse to wear than a Detroit Red Wings jersey. There is a virulent <laughs> rivalry between the Chicago and Blackhawks and the Detroit yeah. Red Wings. And I just think that adds so much to Cameron as a character that like, even in his own city, he's an outsider. And it's just a really, really smart, Great subtle point. piece of wardrobe that like, even if you're not a big hockey fan and don't know about that rivalry, the Detroit Red Wings logo is still pretty recognizable. And it just, it positions him as a, a man without a country. And I just, mm. I really, really love those subtle little, uh, the, those things in the wardrobe design that help tell the story uh, outside of the script. So I just wanted to shout that out. Yeah, that is fantastic. I also like the last name is is How, and it's just like the whole movie can just be like, How is this happening? Well, yeah, Gord, Gordy Howe. Gordy Howe, um, who, yeah. who also played <laughs> hockey into his 50s, which is one of those things. Like, he, he, he was in the NHL from 1946 to, like, 1980. So it, it's just another one of those things, in addition to, like, the old newsboy cap that makes Cameron just seem like he's just a little... And also, he was 29 and Mia Sarah was 18. So it just does... Like, they play up the fact that he is just, like... He does not have a... He doesn't have a group. He doesn't have a home. He does Like, I just... I, I think they, they did a lot of really great stuff with that character in his wardrobe to really bring his, uh, his character out. For sure. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, sick. Well, let's jump into the mailbag. We got an onslaught of voicemails and emails about Goldfinger. All of them were super thoughtful, and we'll try to get through as many as we can. But let's start with um, uh, some voicemails here. If you want to call us and you want to talk about Ferris Bueller, you want to talk about any of our, our past catalog, go ahead at one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. That's one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. The first voicemail that we'll listen to is from Jacob. So many, many wisecrack crew. Jacob calling again in regards to you, to your games Bond podcast. I really like the film. Sean Connery is my favorite James Bond. And I think uh, your podcast summarized the movie pretty well. Now, what caught me, caught my attention this time around was what Austin said about preserving Western culture, I believe, or was uh, one of you guys. Um, this really caught me by surprise because uh, it's a very common theme now in movies of the preservation, it seems, of um, Western civilization. Now, in that regard, we have to look back at the other James Bond movies about where the end justify the means of the mass body count and all the other James Bond films ranging up to the 90s Bonds, and also the Avengers, where massive cities get destroyed. We have uh, giant floating cities getting dropped out of the sky. I just want to know what you guys um, see, if there's any correlation you can see of that in the movies of today with the Bond and the the greater good actions versus the greater good, where, um, you know, maybe we just got to drop the city out of the sky once in a while. So, hey, you guys be safe during this whole craziness and have a nice holiday. Yeah, what do you guys think about that? I think what I was referring to is how, uh, you know, the the mission was ultimately to preserve, like, Western hegemony, right? Um, so there is something about that. What do you, what do you guys think about uh, what is our James Bond today? Uh, Evan, do you have any thoughts on that? Mm, no, go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks, bud. <laughs> um, I know, uh, Austin, we we kind of got lost in the weeds on that uh, last episode, but I do I do think you were onto something with that. That there is a um, a weird strain in those early ones. Certainly, they've they've tried to ground the films uh, through the Daniel Craig series, um, and if nothing else, I I do like that the the new Bond films at least. Uh, show the toll that that kind of life takes on mm. a person rather than just like every single movie he's just smooth and slick as can be basically from Sean Connery to Pierce Brosnan but uh, Daniel Craig I think is maybe the first Bond to to carry certain things even certain characters like Vesper um, and uh, he's he's one of the, the the first Bonds to actually carry an emotional weight from movie to movie. It reminds me of, um, have you seen that movie, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold? Mm-mm. It's a really, really good movie. It's kind of like the mm. anti-James Bond spy movie. Interesting. Where a guy just basically like holes up in a room listening to um, uh, recordings of conversations for days on end and he's just losing his mind. Um, and I, I, do, I do like depictions of stuff like that where they... Um, I mean, you can't go in that direction with James Bond, obviously. Like, you still have to make it big, bombastic action cinema. But I do like that they try to infuse at least a little bit of reality or or some gravity uh, or emotional weight to the things that he does. And with regards to the Avengers stuff, I think I mentioned on one of the first, maybe the very first episode of this show that I was on on Total Recall, how it kind of is crazy to me how many of those Avengers movies were like fucking a million people die every single the, the finale of every single avengers movie is just 9-11 times a thousand and it just is like oh all right well at least we got loki back into the uh prison cell or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, great <laughs> wow yeah right. he really did well it, i mean i think each of the avengers movies like the the big ones like when it's avengers and not just a standalone i mean iron man 3 uh, tony stark deals with a lot of ptsd um and there are nods at, at towards like the, either the beginnings or ends of how like the public is reacting to heroes yeah. and, and the damage they have caused and stuff like that. 
Yeah, and they have the um. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah, I was gonna say let's let's move on to another uh, another voicemail here. Uh, let's go to Jason, who also has some comments about Goldfinger. Hey, this is Jason calling in for the show me the meaning about Goldfinger. Um, I actually have a comment that's more about just Bond, uh, general specifically about the newer Bond movies, and uh, I kind of want to point something out about Skyfall and possibly the new one. Uh, we'll see when it comes out. So you guys were talking about obviously how you know, uh, to put it politely, you know, dated uh, the old movies feel like Goldfinger, especially when it comes to the treatment of characters like Pussy Galore and how they've changed with the times uh, to the point in Skyfall, for instance, uh, you have Money Penny being an agent in the field and M also being played by a woman, uh, which I think is one of those things where it, it like felt they felt that it was very progressive and looked good on the surface, but then was kind of a step back because spoilers for Skyfall, um, Money Penny uh, kind of loses her nerves and screws up so badly that she decides to go back to being a secretary, and M dies and is replaced with a man. And in this kind of way, and then the movie is all about kind of bringing Bond back to the. Uh, you know, what it's known for, the glory days, uh, the golden era. And in doing so, it actually does kind of revert to some maybe more subtle sexism that uh, slid under the radar because they don't play up the Bond uh, sex as much or, you know, have blatant, uh, you know, misogyny. But it's interesting. And uh, I'm curious how that will uh, be reflected or evolve in the new one because they actually do have their uh, bringing in another female agent character and I'm curious if that will you know maybe move the the needle on Bond a little more towards like away from the obviously the uh, explicit misogyny and then also away from the more subtle misogyny um, just a thought and I uh, wonder if you guys have anything to comment on that uh, thanks for thanks for the podcast I love listening to you guys bye there's a, there's a lot there. What do we think? Evan, what do you think? Well, I'm not... Um, Still haven't watched uh, it in the uh, yeah, last 15 seconds. Yeah, just not in the Bond... Uh, not <laughs> too into the Bond franchise. But, uh, Is it on I'm principle, not crazy about on principle either, but... or like you just kind of never got into them? Uh, mostly just uh, I never got into them. I, I just... Uh, I don't think I... I, I got it. I, I mean, I'm definitely interested in checking out the Daniel Craig ones, but um, I think my dad had one of them on TV a lot when I was younger. That was one movie he loved to rewatch. And I was okay. just like, I don't know. Let's do this. Let's it. do this. Uh, so the next voicemail from Ryan is actually going to talk about Mission Impossible. So why don't we try to answer both of these, and this will be the last thing we oh, do. No. So let's let's play the voicemail from Ryan. Hey, Wisecrack. This is Ryan. Just wanted to talk about the Goldfinger uh, podcast that you just did. I wanted to hear your thoughts on the uh, kind of the big debate you talked about Fast and the Furious being a um, kind of I guess similar movie to you know Goldfinger and uh, James Bond and all that but I think I want to hear your guys thoughts on Mission Impossible and the James Bond movies I think James Bond are better than Mission Impossible just want to hear your thoughts and uh, thanks a lot I'll talk to you hopefully in the future. All right, Raymond, can you synthesize those two voicemails in uh, in, a, in a response there? Like, what do we think about, yeah, James Bond oh, becoming boy. progressive and then compared to Mission Impossible? Like, what... I, I, <laughs> I have a feeling... I have a feeling you are a Mission Impossible fan. Yes? I do. I do like the Mission Impossible movies quite a bit. And I do think that they... The reason I went to Fast and the Furious is because, like I said on that episode, when those guys get into cars, they become superheroes. And one of the things that I love about Mission Impossible is that Tom Cruise is a psychopath playing a psychopath. And <laughs> the movies more and more as he's gotten older are leaning into that. Whereas, you know, James Bond has gotten into this whole sort of moody vibe where he's he's wearing the weight of, uh, like we were talking about before, he's, he's having to carry this emotional burden from movie to movie now, which is a little bit more realistic. But the fact that Tom Cruise into his 60s is doing these fucking stunts where he's dangling from helicopters and and uh, rappelling down the Burj Khalifa and things. The the Mission Impossible movies stand in I think pretty sharp contrast to the Bond films because they're all about now that he's getting older, 
they're all about how like his entire team's fucking afraid of him because he's just insane. And half of the movies now are like, if, if the plan went off without a hitch in all the recent mission impossible movies, it would be over in 45 minutes, but half the movie is now just Tom Cruise going, I can unfuck this. I can unfuck this. And it's insane to me that they keep bringing him back into the fold for yet another mission because he constantly is compromising them in ways that he then has to work twice as hard to get them out of. So these are two, you know, totally different uh, franchises. They've gone in different directions over the years. But I, I do think that Bond is one that will keep going past Daniel Craig. And they will continue to adjust with the times. Whereas I want Tom Cruise to make as many of these fucking Mission Impossible movies while he can. If they have to wheel him on set in a chair for Mission Impossible 13, I still want to see it. Because I'm pretty sure that franchise can't go on without him. Yeah, uh, it sounds about right. All right, uh, we didn't get to get into the emails this week, but um, if you want to email us, you can also email us. Rather than just calling in, you can email us movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co, not .com. So you can definitely send us your thoughts on if you want to continue the convo on Goldfinger or if you want to talk about Ferris Bueller, whatever. Give us your thoughts. All right, gents, where can people find you on the internet? Evan. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at studio two underscores ye. Um, I just put out a short film that Raymond actually wrote and produced uh, that I directed. We worked on it last year. Uh, oh, sorry, he wrote and produced it. Raymond and I directed it. Yeah, we <laughs> I worked on it last year, and we just uh, we just put it out uh, last week. And it turned out well. You did you did well on it, Evan. Nice. Hello. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's uh, just about competition in the uh, creative arts, and I think. Uh, very relatable. <laughs> cool. All right, Raymond, what about you, brother? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. That's C-R-E-A-M-A-T-O-R-I-A. Uh, I wanted to shout out someone in the chat. Michelle Chapman was weighing in with a ton of uh, Chicago-specific uh, details from Ferris Bueller. So, uh, Michelle, if you get a chance to write us an email or send us a voicemail, please do. We'd love to hear more details about Chicago in this era. Yes. But uh, that's, uh, that's all I've got. What about you, Austin? Yeah, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. You can also find me on Insta, A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. Whatevs. It's all good. We're out. <laughs> Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Is it a liberal middle class dream of exploiting the backs of the working class, but maybe with some sort of fantasy about breaking free from the system with a little bit of an anarchist tinge? I don't know, man. Who's Raymond, to say? Raymond, send us out, brother. From Hollywood, California, what the <laughs> hell is the matter with you? <laughs>